The thought that God will not remain invisible, but will visibly return in Christ can be unsettling. And the thought that he will return not alone, but accompanied by angels in order to establish once and for all perfect submission among all intelligent beings. If you actually believe that, that is an awesome, incredible thing to believe. And the world does not like that idea. They like it as a myth or as a greeting card. They do not like the idea of being held to account for eternity. And yet this is the testimony of Scripture. And if you haven't done so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians to chapter 2. We're going to see this. Some months ago, we had the opportunity to work our way through the entire first epistle to the church in Thessalonica. That church was composed predominantly of brand new believers. In some areas, you had a strong core of Jews who came to faith, already had a lot of background in the faith. In the case of Thessalonica, it was mostly people converted from a Gentile background. And now Paul is writing a second epistle to them at a time when persecution has intensified. Now I can imagine there may be children here who wonder, why do people persecute Christians? You've heard of that. Persecution is harm done to God's people. Why would people do that? Don't Christians want to love everyone, do good, worship the Lord? But we have to understand then as now the way that Christianity is looked upon when it is lived out faithfully. It's oftentimes looked upon as disloyalty to a culture, to the gods they worship, whether literal gods or whether it be the cultural idols, the morals that they adhere to if they are running against the Lord. It has to do with the fact that Christians are called to be light and salt in the world, to call out that which is evil, to speak against those things which are shameful and vile. And that will not win you favor with the world when the world loves sin. And so in a number of different ways, these Christians were beginning to experience what it was to be persecuted. Now, Paul writes a letter, and I can imagine when they receive it, they've been waiting for a while, mail moves slow then. There is perhaps a a certain amount of hope and excitement. Will this be a word of relief? And it is a word of relief. But it's not the relief, perhaps, that they anticipated. And I can anticipate that if you or I should be faced with an increasing weight of painful persecution or affliction, that we are going to want relief right now. But here, the Lord is presenting us with an opportunity through his word to be prepared to receive the relief he gives us. Let's hear what he says beginning at verse 4. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. For which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Spirit's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we pause to ask you to apply these things in power here among us. Oh God, we pray that you would be glorified as your people are given genuinely submissive hearts, that we would not look with scorn or doubt upon what you have revealed here, but that we would be convicted that everything you do is right and therefore our sometimes indifference or forgetfulness about final judgment is a reflection of sin and not about you. We ask, Lord, that you would please strengthen us to attend to these things in mind and with spirit in order that we might be made more able through your help to carry forward the work that you've called us to as missionaries of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would understand if it seems surprising to you at all that the idea of Jesus' final judgment would be presented as a matter of relief to anyone. There are many people, and certainly some Christians, for whom this doctrine of final judgment is one that induces anxiety whenever we have the boldness to look it in the face. It's one thing to acknowledge it somewhere in the background, but it's another thing to actually dwell on it. The Bible declares that every single person will stand before the Lord. And the books will be opened, and God is omniscient. Nothing can be hidden from him, whether those things were done in the body or in the heart. And then to understand that God is a just God. Very often, this sense of finality, of reality is a source of fear or discomfort in people. And yet the Holy Spirit does clearly lead his people in this passage to see this as a doctrine of relief. And God helping us this morning, it will become for you, if it is not already, a doctrine of relief. And one that you call upon as a source of joy, not a source of fear. Every Christian should aspire to have regularity in looking upon the final judgment with joy. Reverence, silence perhaps at times, but an ability to marvel, even as our text says, that Christ comes to be marveled at by his people. And so we're going to consider this passage under two main headings. I'll announce each of them again as we come to them. But basically, first, we're going to need to have a general sense, a general picture of the doctrine of final judgment. I realize that for some of us, these things are more or less familiar. For others, they are utterly new. And so we need to have that in hand. But then, 
as a second main heading, we're going to look at the relief which this represents to us. No one should leave here not grasping some of that relief this morning. So these are the things we're going to look at. Now, in the first place, though, you might have the question, when will the final judgment be? When will it be? Or how will it begin? Look with me at verse 7. This tells us how it begins. It says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The word revealed is the key word here. He is not presently visible, and yet he will be. And so we should not think of the final judgment as something that is hidden from earthly view, something that happens merely in a spiritual realm. And I believe that's how most of the world, if they even acknowledge some kind of judgment, they think that's how it's going to work. Your body stays here forever, your soul goes somewhere else to be judged. The Bible talks about a general resurrection and that all things will be done publicly, even as we lived in a body. So shall Christ return. Acts chapter 2 says he will return in the same manner in which you saw him depart. He departed visibly with glory, attended by angels. And so there will be a day when the exact opposite happens, when we see him come back. What a day. How can we even begin to imagine what will that look like for the modalities that we have known for earth and this realm as we have understood it? to unfold, to reveal the divine, and for all people to look upon it as a reckoning. And when will that be? Scripture doesn't tell us precisely as we might want, but it does tell us it will follow after the last of all who will come to faith have been brought to faith. And so there's purpose in our patience. It's not wasted. And it does mean that we should be about our Father's business. The Scripture says that we ought to make the use of the time for the days are evil. We speak Salt and grace, knowing that there is a finite amount of time. This will not go forever and ever and ever until our sun burns out. Until humans have just died of some seemingly natural cause. There will be an abrupt cataclysmic end. The world scoffs at that and they scoffed at the flood. They will scoff at everything which might in the end hold them to the fire of the reality. You can't be your own God. You can't. The Lord will be your God, whether or not you submit to him. He will stand over all. And so what is the general picture that we have of this judgment? This is our first main idea. And a comparison text for us is in John, John chapter 5, verse 22, where it tells us who presides over that judgment. And it is true, God presides over it. And yet Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 22, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wishes. The Father acts, but he acts through the Son. Both are very God. They share the same being and essence and attributes. And the Father works through the Son. Then Jesus says in verse 22, Furthermore, the Father judges no one, but has assigned all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The judge will wear our nature. An awesome thought to imagine Pilate, who judged Jesus, being brought before Jesus. And yet that is the reality of what is described. We all shall behold him to give an account 
And it won't be enough for us to say, you don't know what it's like to be human, how hard it is. He says, no, I have been and am. I took to myself your nature. I was tempted as others were and yet without sin. I have upheld righteousness. He will stand over the judgment. Now, scripture does indicate that others will participate in this judgment in some sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do you not know that you also will judge angels? Does that mean that we'll bear witness, that we'll play some part of the evidential committee about how we were plagued at times by the spiritual? I don't know. And yet, think that the Lord will involve his holy people, not merely as spectators, but as those who have been raised to high places. And then also the angels have roles to play in this. When it describes them in scripture, it describes them as gathering all who will be brought to judgment. That those who are yet alive on earth shall be gathered up by the angels and brought to one place. Remember, if Jesus has a physical body, and he does, then the judgment will be localized. People will be gathered. I've heard that the entire population of the whole world fits in Tampa, Florida, if we're all to be crammed together. And so the Lord will bring all people to his judgment. The angels also are described throughout Scripture as witnesses, as covenant enforcers, And I am, on the one hand, grateful, I think, for the most part, that we don't see them. And yet God did create them for a purpose, not merely to be conveyors of, like, divine email. I've been studying in particular recently this idea, what the scripture says concerning that which is unseen. And the Bible has things to say about it. But I think the general tenor of it is to cause us to put our hands over our mouth and acknowledge our smallness. Kind of, I know some of you have done some lay study or advanced study concerning physics. I can tell you that my study of physics has only led me to realize the more we know about this physical world, the stranger it seems. And you have to adore the Lord that his mind comprehends it all. Even so, the beings that are beyond our sight must surely be more majestic than anything that we have thought of. And they're involved, but scripture doesn't tell us in all the ways. Now, the judgment consists, first of all, in a basic division. This is a first major idea about the judgment, after we understand who judges, is that it involves a basic division into two groups that are fundamentally different and which shall be separated forever. And so it's not just a gradation. Everybody goes to glory, but it's just different for everyone. Fundamentally two groups, as you see in verse 9 of our text. Some will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. If the word eternal signifies anything there, it's to say there is finality. There is no coming back from this. Before we raise all the objections about how can God be just, so and so forth, wrestle with the fact the text says it. You can't write it off. Matthew 25 expands on this. In fact, I invite you to look with me at Matthew 25. This is in the Gospels in the New Testament, the very first Gospel. And Jesus is the one speaking. And 
I draw you to this text in part because it's not as if it's just that the apostles and the Old Testament prophets were cranky and had inhumane thoughts and Jesus was very different and he only thought the best of everyone all the time. That is a cartoon version of Jesus that does not exist in the scriptures. Anyone who reckons with the scriptures know that Jesus will purge a temple at times. He'll take up the whip. There's a time for judgment, which is not unbecoming of him because he's righteous. Chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus speaking says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is exceedingly good news that not everyone is lost. That is the case when it comes to the fallen angels that none of them are retrieved. Scripture gives no indication of redemption over any of those angels which fell. And yet among all the sinners of the world, we do see that there is a group to whom he says, blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Not just start back at neutral. I pardon your sin, but you can figure it out from here. You don't really deserve anything good. Inherit the kingdom. But verse 41 Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The fact that it says prepared for the devil and his angels indicates that this is, in one sense we might say, not the proper abode of man. God doesn't arbitrarily assign anyone to hell. The only reason we might say, for condemnation, is sin. God is just. Now, why is anyone brought to faith? We'll come back to that. That's grace. But on the other side, why is anyone condemned? They can only look at the fact that they are sinners. God sends no innocent person into judgment. It says that Christ comes back in righteousness in our text. The basis then for this condemnation, if anyone be condemned, it will be for one reason. John chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders, people who know the law. And he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Jesus didn't come and introduce the concept of morality for the first time. God had already revealed to his people through Moses what the standard of righteousness is. And they knew clearly more than anyone in the world what God required of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Live gratefully. What about those who didn't receive the law? What about the person living in some part of the world who never even heard the gospel? The book of Romans says very plainly, as is the testimony throughout all scripture, no one can speak and claim innocence. Because 
even though they did not have the law written on tablets, yet they did have the law inscribed upon their heart. That is, we have a sense of what is right. We have a sense that there is good and evil, and yet every person must acknowledge. And I challenge down to the youngest person here, do you always and only do the things you believe are right? Even if your standard is darkened and corrupted, yet you live against it, right? And so the scripture says that every mouth will be stopped by the law. There is no one who is justified by works of the law. That group which stands condemned will be condemned justly. Now, secondarily, the scripture does acknowledge there will be distinctions in the degree of punishment. And likewise of reward for those who receive blessing. Having made that first major distinction, there are also distinctions among individuals. It would be unthinkable if God should give the exact same degree of punishment to every person when not all have sinned in the same way. Turn with me and look at Revelation chapter 20. Last book of the Bible, chapter 20. The Apostle John is seeing in a vision things to come, and the nature of a vision is that God accommodates to us certain things in a way that we can understand, and so it's possible aspects of this will, in reality, look a little different than what's described here, and yet the core is faithful. For instance, the fact that it mentions things written in books, will they be literal books of paper? I don't know, but they indicate records. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From it, or from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. When it says earth and sky fled away, I believe the best way to understand this is it's a representation of all those who are yet living and those who are already past. And there is a sense of recoiling and dread from the idea of judgment. And the vision makes clear, no one can escape it. No one can escape being judged. You must pass through judgment. Now we'll come back to whether or not you do that in yourself or in another. But the fact that the records are open, this indicates some difference of judgment. Matthew chapter 16, I don't ask you to turn there, it's very brief, but Matthew 16 verse 27. Jesus says, the son of man, speaking of himself, will repay each person according to what he has done. Or Luke chapter 12, in a parable, Jesus says, That servant who knows his master's will but does not get ready or follow his instructions will be beaten with many blows. But the one who unknowingly does things worthy of punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from him who has been entrusted with much, even more will be demanded. These and other passages like them indicate that there will be a difference in the degree of punishment. 
And yet the extent remains the same. Revelation 20 verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The finality is inescapable. As I said before the sermon, you know, the question, is a church going to be ashamed of what the Bible teaches? And I can acknowledge to an extent a variety of interpretations of what, say, lake of fire means and how it will be realized. But you can't explain away the, it's clearly driving at torment. And it's clearly driving at a sense of finality. Final judgment, we might say in one sense, represents God in justice confirming his creatures in their choice. And the choice is that, as it says in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When it says the light there, it's not simply talking about when Jesus came in his incarnation. But from the, from the very beginning, light came into the world. God created all things. He revealed himself. And from the beginning, human beings have showed a preference. And angelic beings, some of them have shown a preference. Not to have his presence, but to be driven by the self through sin. And to deceive themselves into believing, this is where my joy is. There will be, according to scripture, no one consigned to hell who desired to be with the Lord. They may desire escape, but they don't desire to live in a way that is submitted to a holy God forever. I want to bear witness right at this point. If you have that in your heart, this desire to serve the Lord such that your sin is a burden to you, and you say, I want to be delivered into perfect obedience, that did not come from the world. That's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in you, one of the evidences of which age you will belong to. That doesn't come from anyone. And Christian who has been a Christian for a long time, do not forget that is not in the world. The world might wear a veneer of goodness, such that we are tempted at times to almost feel like God is in the wrong. No, we cannot believe that, and that will not be the case what we see. Much more could be said about final judgment. The nature of catechetical sermons is to be a review and to lay a foundation for those who are younger or newer. More could be said, but at this point, you have a general sense. There will be a basic division into two groups, and those who stand condemned, there will be a distinction in the degree of punishment, and yet it will be final. How can this be a matter of relief? Because remember, we have to come back to that. That's why Paul is writing. It was intended for relief to Christians. This brings us to our second, our final heading. Why this judgment represents relief for believers. Look at me at verse 12, where it says concerning Jesus, he comes to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. 
And then going forward, it says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Final judgment will be a relief because it means finally marveling at who Christ is and what he has done for you. I'm sure you've, many of you have seen videos or perhaps in person when in a courtroom the, the judgment is read out and the person who's guilty begins to weep like it wasn't real, really real until then. They're hoping against hope. Maybe they can get out of this. In a sense, I think that's how it will work for us. We have some sense. Christians have some sense. What we have sought the Lord to be delivered from. But until you see judgment fall upon the world and you know in your heart, that is what I deserve. Maybe I didn't sin as much as that person, but I did not love the Lord. So often, I, even after I was a believer and I had more light than others, yet I turned away. Even on the very Lord's Day, even on a day where I knew I was going to go partake in communion, that very morning I did things that I'm deeply ashamed of. The standard by which those who enter life is not going to be a standard of strict justice relative to themselves, but it was strict justice upon Christ. You will marvel when you see the one and begin to understand what it meant for him to endure the suffering that he did. Because his suffering was equal and beyond. It was sufficient to deliver you from that final judgment, which others will never exhaust. Isaiah 53 foretold hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. And think of the joy on that day. Part of the marveling at Christ is his power to raise the dead. You won't be raised to suspense. The very nature of your resurrection will already tell you, I'm fine. I'm not condemned. And so it will be for us a relief to know with certainty the judgment has already passed. He who comes to judge his enemies has already borne the judgment of his friends. And who does he call his friends? Even those who believe upon him, who believe the testimony given concerning him, that he receives all who will look to him in faith. There's a second part of this relief, though, and it's in verse 6. It has to do with deliverance from enemies. Look at me at verse 6. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, it is just to repay with affliction. Perhaps you feel a discomfort with that when, in almost sympathy for unbelievers, and I would say, in a sense, that's good and natural. Because at this time, you know that you are a recipient of grace upon grace upon grace. And you don't know whom the Lord will show grace to, and you don't know who is going to seek grace by his grace from him. And so there's always the possibility that person or that person, they may come to know the Lord. Vengeance is his. I don't need to seek it. Maybe they are a Saul of Tarsus, and they're going to become a Paul. Maybe they're persecuting. It's not 
in my hands to decide whether they are going to be redeemed. And so I'm going to show grace as a grace receiver. God is not in your position of needing grace. He is righteous. He is holy. He, this, he beholds and knows exactly what we would be and would do the whole world if all restraints were taken off. Under the worst circumstances, where the circumstances only reveal what was already in us. I imagine all of us, myself included, believe that we are far, far more holy and more sanctified than we are. God will do justice. And for us, we have to recognize that there's never going to be, I don't see any indication in Scripture, there's going to be this magic point in history where the world stops persecuting. Jesus said, in the world, you will suffer. The, Paul went on three different missionary journeys, but what's forgotten is the second missionary journey wasn't a missionary journey. On the second journey, it says, Acts chapter 14, he went back out to all the churches which had been planted in order to tell them that through great tribulation we shall enter the kingdom. And he wasn't talking about something far away only. He was trying to build them up to endure. Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Sometimes the Lord grants a reprieve in one area or several areas of the world. Whether that lasts for decades or centuries, part of the church gets a breather. Sometimes that's because he's providing for the other parts of the church through them. But it will be that the world rises up against this church. And the scripture tells us that one day all the world will rise up against the church. In that day, it will be a great relief to God's people to know there will be an end. People will be held accountable. If anyone, you can have this superficial, vapid, and maybe yours is not like that. Maybe it's sincere and comes from a big heart. But you can have this thought that, well, you know, you should just forgive your enemies. Until someone actually harms your loved one, it's hard to understand the yearning that is then in the human heart, a righteous yearning. Is there not justice in the world? We're not talking a few Christians have died. We're talking thousands, thousands, thousands filling up stadiums have been killed through history. Many scholars are asserting in the last 10 years, because population is bigger, more Christians have been killed for their faith than all history combined. It is out of our sight. We don't like to think about it. Christ thinks about it every day. He loves his church. He will not let it suffer forever. And our enemy, not just physical, but the spiritual that stands behind it, will never cease. Satan will never be your friend. He breathes enmity. What a relief. I urge you to think about this when you think about those who are being persecuted in this world and when you become fearful about persecution here, whether for yourself or your kids. Christ is sitting on his throne. He takes it seriously. Judgment will come in time. For us, this is a great relief. It may not seem like a relief to you right now, and I want to ask you to consider why that is. And I want to suggest to you, and I say this as one who passed through a, a bitter time of this myself, right around age 20, where I started to fear judgment, 
And then I started to not like that God would judge and trying to find ways to make the Bible say something else. Is it not because you do not have assurance that you are accepted? If you don't have assurance that you're accepted, you will try to hide your face from the judgment. But the assurance of acceptance can never come through any degree of faithfulness in yourself. And yet that day is coming. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he appointed. And of this, he gave us assurance by raising him from the dead. The resurrection was a historical event, and it came with a job description, not just to save sinners, but to bring judgment against the world. He has fixed a day, which means that there's one less day today than there was yesterday. The day comes, and so we're called to prepare. I want to exhort everyone in this church, take seriously, not only that the judgment will come, but the correlation between faithfulness and final acceptance. I want to be clear, I'm not saying that your salvation is based on your works at all. And yet your works do, in this life, bear witness to the reality of your faith. Look with me once more at our text. Verse 8 says, Wrath will fall on, quote, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Well, I feel like I know the Lord. But how do you know that you know the Lord? How do others know that you know the Lord? 1 John chapter 1 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commands. No one can claim we do so perfectly. We have an advocate in heaven to whom we confess. But the general tenor of your life is one of daily submission, of daily coming back. And even so, you see in verse 5 of our text, Paul praises their steadfastness in the faith. He praises their steadfastness because he sees the way that it's tied to the, the final judgment that even as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, a tree will be known by its fruit. I, I, can't, I can't be above pleading with you that you would take this seriously and that you would ask yourself the question in light of Scripture, not in light of the culture, not in light of even this congregation. I mean, no offense to this congregation whom I love dearly. Your standard of holiness can't be based on anything except Scripture. Does your life bear the evidence of a person who will pass through that judgment? Have you come to know him in truth? And if you have, then may this be a point of marveling for you, something that you shout about and share with others, the hope that you have. It is so much better than anything else that we could lay claim to. Let's ask the Lord to give us joy in that even now. Heavenly Father, grace comes from you when you show us that there will be a judgment. It is in order that we would be driven to Christ. We thank you that even the ability to show forth the evidence of faith comes from your hand, even as it says in our, our text that God is the one who makes you worthy of his calling, that he fulfills every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. We ask that you would please work in us 
deep, sincere repentance, that if any have not yet come to know you, Lord, that you would please lay hold of their hearts, bring them to faith, cause them to walk in a way worthy of the kingdom. We thank you, Father, that you give us hope that in all distress and persecution with uplifted heads, we confidently await the judge, knowing that he has been judged for us. We thank you that our enemies, whether in the world or the flesh or the devil, will be made no more. And we ask that you would help us to live lives in light of these unseen things, that you would cut through so much of what clings to us at present. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.